Welcome to the Dancing at the Crossroads podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Ferguson, and this podcast brings you stories about Irish culture in America. We'll spread out around the country, but we'll begin and often return to Eastern New York, where this podcast has its origins as an outgrowth of the PBS documentary of the same name. In this episode, I'll bring you a story about a storyteller, and I'll start this story in what I hope is, well, its middle. A lot has come before it, and I'm hoping much more is yet to come. That's because at this moment, I'm standing with 300 other Catholics in New York St. Barnabas Church. We're here at a healing mass for three Irish Americans who have fallen ill, Tom Furlong, Dennis McCarthy, and our storyteller, Peter McKiernan. Peter McKiernan is known affectionately as Mr. Catskills. First, a word of explanation. The Catskills we speak of here is not the, the better-known Jewish Catskills that, well, to modern audiences anyway, is the playground of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We're talking here about the Irish Catskills, a collection of bars, bungalows, and small hotels about an hour's drive northeast of the famed Borstbelt. It's here, for the past 40 summers, that Mr. Catskills made a name for himself. I've known Peter for much of that time, and while we've never been especially close, he's always been very generous with his time. He sat for three interviews, the first in his Brooklyn apartment in 2011, the second on the drive up to the Catskills in 2013, and the third in the Catskills themselves in 2014. What emerged from those talks was a different Peter McKiernan than the one I had known. Like most, I had known Peter both as a guitar-strumming balladeer... Well, how do you do, young Ray McBride? And as someone who can pack a dance floor by playing up-tempo Irish country tunes. With the mandolins, fill up the horn. Gotta try left, you kill them all. Just like you, just like you. But I met another Peter McKiernan in those interviews. Peter, the proud historian and defender of the Irish Catskills. As I mentioned, he's been playing the Catskills for 40 years, but he's been spending his summers there for 60. In 1958, Peter's father, Hugh McKiernan, bought a scrap of land behind Bill Hartigan's Tower View Hotel. He bought a used camper, parked it out back, and the McKiernans became official summer residents of the Catskills. Sure, the, the camper had no electricity and no running water, but it had a few luxuries the McKiernans didn't have back in the city, namely fresh air and open space. I was eight years old. We came up from Astoria, from the city, from the concrete, and um, the natural beauty of the area was the first the thing that struck me as, a, as, as, as I remember. I mean, it was a long time ago, uh, and the difference between the Catskills and, and the city was you know, day and night, another, you're in another planet. And going up on the bus with my mother, I still, if I go to the Port Authority in New York and smell the fumes from the buses, it brings me right back to the time when my mother and I would take the bus up. Eventually, my mother would bring some of the kids from the neighborhood up with us. So it would cut the tension between me and my brother, who was three years older. We'd bring... Uh, for instance, one of my friends. And uh, when we were kids uh, uh, in the city, we'd play stickball all summer long. That was our thing. And I loved to shag fly balls, and so did my buddy. My brother would 
go behind the resort we were staying, they had a big football field, which we didn't have in Brooklyn. We had a narrow street with cars on either side, and my brother would hit them out to us. And we would shag fly balls all afternoon for maybe two and a half hours, three hours, just one fly after the other, making circus catches, this and that. And then after we'd finished that, we'd be all sweaty, we'd run to the pool, which is another thing we never had in Brooklyn. There's a pool. We would stay in the pool six hours straight. My mother would come, our lips would be purple. She would yell at us for being in the pool so long, but it was great. It was great. And I remember there was a waiter there at, at the Hardigans that used to hop the fence with one move, one motion, you know, just hop that fence. And we wanted to be that guy. Peter's mother, June, had her own reasons for heading to the mountains. My mother. And uh, my mother was a depression, grew up in the depression and uh, was from a large family. Nobody was wealthy. Not that we were poverty stricken, but we were not wealthy. And uh, we came up to the Catskills and my mother was so thrilled. The first, the very first morning, I remember it like it was yesterday. The Irish waitress with her accent asked my mother if she wanted orange juice or tomato juice. And my mother was looking at us like, I don't believe this is happening that somebody is asking me for a change, what kind of, not, do you want juice? What kind of juice do I want? Tomato juice or orange juice? She was so thrilled with that, that somebody was serving her a meal instead of her serving us a meal. It was, that's what she loved about the Catskills, that she didn't have to cook. It was also in those early years that Peter was first exposed to any sort of Irish culture. For although his father had grown up in Ireland, the rigors of that upbringing tempered any sentimental notions about the homeland. Ireland was hard for him when he lived in Leitrim. He was living with his cousins. His mother died when he was born, so they sent him to Ireland to be raised, and he didn't even have his father there. He had nobody there. Uh, so it was a tough life for him. He was delighted to come to America and uh, didn't speak about Ireland, didn't, never cared to go back. If he hit the lotto, he wouldn't have went back because he had nothing to go back to. So we didn't really have the uh, culture in our house. But when we came to the Catskills, we got it. For Peter, that culture included dancing to live music in the Tower of Hughes bar. This was the first time, you know, I heard, I used to sing with my mother with the radio, and we'd hear all the songs. But to see a live band, a five-piece band, uh, Happy O'Brien playing banjo, guy on the saxophone playing the stack of barley. And Happy O'Brien playing it there. A girl singer from Ireland who would come out, you know, Diana Clark from Ireland. She gave us 8x12s with her autograph. We got an autograph from a star. And she would sing, If you're Irish, come into the parlor. Come from Ireland, there's a welcome on the map. Oh my God, it was it was it was super. And the I, I remember the waiters would give us uh, free soda. You know, we'd go up and hang out with them, and then here's a coke with the ice cubes with the hole in it. And uh, we'd go back to the table. We got free cokes. You know, it was a small thing, but it was a great thing. You know, and it was just a great thing to see a live band and the dancing. We learned our dancing without 
thinking about it, the stack of barley, the Highland Flame, Shoe the Donkey, the Siege of Venice. There's humanity up here. And when we came up uh, first, uh, we didn't know these neighbors that became our lifelong friends, but their daughter asked my brother to dance. He was about 12 or, well, how old was he? I guess he was 11 and she was about 10. So that began the family friendship. And that happened all the time, things like that. And also uh, one thing that would happen would be that a grandmother would teach her granddaughter how to dance. And these neighbors knew the Irish dances. And they would just bring us up on the floor and count it. Threes and sevens, stack of barley. One, two, three, one, two, three. Sevens around the house. And we'd learn. And in those days, they used to have a doll dance. And um, whereby they'd pass the doll around Music would stop, whoever was holding the doll would have to sit down. And of course the couple with the doll at the end won the contest. So my parents were in it and they would shove the doll back and forth and they came down to the, the last ones. It was my parents and another couple. And the, the other couple shoved the doll to my father and he went sliding under a table. Yeah, these are the memories that are, are great. Peter's biggest discovery, though, would come about 20 years later. Traditional Irish music played as it was intended. Sometimes the traditional music was not played by the best players, wasn't played by really, strictly speaking, traditional, uh, traditional musicians, which, by which I mean people that played jigs and reels strictly and knew how to play them. These guys, some of them were jazz players that read the notes. It's not the same thing. So. When I started working up here in the 70s, there was one night that uh, we went to a place and some of the great trad traditional players were there. Uh, Billy McComiskey, who's now the king of the accordion, you might say. And he was playing and the music sounded better than I ever heard it. It was, it was like, what, what, what is this music? It's so much better than I've ever heard it before. And on this particular night, there was a troupe of dancers there, and they all got up and danced. And if you ever see step dancers get up and dance in an impromptu way, it is magnificent. And it was like I was St. Paul getting knocked off the horse that night because I finally understood what really Irish traditional music was. I heard it being played the way it should be played and then I saw the dancing to complement it and it, I, I've never looked back. It's always been a part of my life and I love it. I love it.
It was that discovery that led Peter to one of his best afternoons in the Catskills and to one of my favorite Peter McKiernan stories. There was one time I was playing, uh, I had a nice band in, uh, in a place called Aaron's Melody, one of the houses up here, and uh, Andy McGann came in to see us. And Andy McGann is a god of traditional music because he really knew how to play it better than anyone. And the fiddler I was playing with, Pat Keogh, was one of his students. Andy was his mentor. So Andy came into the bar. It was a Sunday afternoon, a beautiful Sunday afternoon in late summer, August, let's say. And maybe there were 35 people in the bar. And uh, the fiddler I was playing with introduced Andy McGann and gave him a great introduction. Said, this is the man that taught me how to play the fiddle. Brought him up to the stage and asked, pleaded with Andy to play the Coolin, which is a beautiful air, Irish air, a beautiful, one of the, like the classics, classic Irish air. And Andy, this was Andy's party piece, the Coolin. As I said, we had about 35 people in the bar. And, you know, when you play in the Catskills, it's not Carnegie Hall. People talk, people clink their glasses. In those days, they smoked. And uh, this day, and he started playing the Kulin. Beautifully. I'm sitting right there next to Andy McGann. He's saying, I must be in heaven. This guy's playing the Kulin. I'm sitting right next to him. And uh, one by one, the beer glasses went down. He was playing it great. And uh, he finished the Kulin. We're just about ready to finish, and, and Pat is sitting here, Pat Keogh is student, and he said, and, and meanwhile, the whole bar is hushed by this time, right? 35 people, not a peep, and uh, Andy's finishing in the cooling, and Pat goes, play it again, Andy, play it again, and then he goes into it with a big, long stroke.
It was unbelievable. And then he's ready to finish it the second time. And Pat says to me, G, like the key of G. Jimmy Kelly's on the drums. And they go into this reel. And the place went crazy. You had to be there. It was, it's magic. It's the Catskills. Many years later, the Irish music continues. This time, it's in St. Barnabas. Peter's unable to attend, but he'll listen to a recording of it later on the eighth floor of the Albany Medical Center. It's there that he's being treated for a glioblastoma. It's the same type of aggressive brain tumor that took his brother's life 10 years earlier. Looking across the 30 pews at St. Barnabas, it's clear that many of the congregants know each other. Along the left side, two dozen men from the ancient order of Hibernians wear their silk sashes of green, white, and orange, the tricolors of the Irish flag. Up front, just to the left of the altar, a cluster of Irish-American musicians give voice through their instruments to the sacred mystery of transubstantiation, in which bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. On the altar, the Mass is celebrant, Father Brendan Fitzgerald of Kilkenny, Ireland, invokes the Holy Spirit to heal the three men. We'll have more stories from Mr. Caskills in the next episode and we wish for him a return to good health. For Dancing at the Crossroads, this is Kevin Ferguson. Just a few programming notes. Today we heard Billy McComiskey, Liz Carroll, Laura Byrne, and Brendan Dolan playing Cuz T. Hands Reel from the live CD Crack in the Caskills 2010. Standing in for Diana Clark, we heard Ruby Murray singing If You're Irish, Come Into the Parlor. Playing Eleanor Plunkett at the Healing Mass was Anne Maria Costa on keyboard, Alice Smith on harp, Margie Mulvihill on flute, and John Reynolds on fiddle. Bernadette Fee played the stack of barley, and it was Loretta Egan Murphy and John Brennan playing the Ash Grove. Brian Conway on fiddle and Felix Dolan on piano played the Coolin from their tribute album to Andy McGann. And of course, Peter McKiernan himself played Green Fields of France and Ireland from his EP of the same name. The interview with Peter was recorded by P.H. O'Brien in the home of Mary Lou Nahas and edited by myself. We'll leave you today with the one and only Mr. Catskills giving us his full rendition of Green Fields of France. Well, how do you do, young Marie McBride? Do you mind if I rest here down by your graveside and sit for a while neat the warm summer sun? I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done. Well, I see by your gravestone you are only 19. 
you join the great fallen in 1916? Well, I hope you died well, and I hope you died green. My young Willie McBride, was it slow and obscene? Did they beat the drums slowly? Did they play the fife lowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Did you leave any wife? Or a sweetheart behind In that faithful heart Is your memory enshrined Although you died back In 1916 In that faithful heart Are you forever 19? Or are you a stranger Without even a name Closed and forever Behind the glass frame In an old photograph Torn, battered and stained And faded to yellow Neat the brown leather frame Did they beat the drums slowly? Did they play the fife lowly? Did they sound a death march as they lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? And did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? And the sun, now it shines on the green fields of France. There's a warm summer breeze, makes the red poppies dance. And look how the sun shines from under the clouds. There's no gas, no barbed wire, there's no gun firing now. But here is graveyard it's still no man's land the countless white crosses stand mute in the sand to man's blind indifference to his fellow man to a whole generation who were butchered and damned did they beat the drums slowly did they play the fife lowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Our young Willie McBride, I can't help 
wondering why do those that lie here know why did they die and did they believe when they answered the call did they really believe that this war would end wars well the sorrow the suffering the glory the pain the killing and the dying were all done in vain our young Willie McBride it all happened again and again and again and again and again did they beat the drums slowly did they play the fife lowly did they sound the death march as they lowered you down and did the band play the last post and chorus did the pipes play the flowers of the forest 